A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the cars that we shouldn't like but do like. And actually, I suppose, Andrew, they are our automotive guilty pleasures. Um, now, I'm just looking down your list. There are some here that I think make sense, but others that you sh- really should be guilty, feel guilty <laughs> for liking. <laughs> we'll come to those. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these, the, these are cars which are... I mean, most of them are actually cars which I shouldn't like, but I do. But I think some of them are cars which are also better than their reputation suggests, even if ultimately... Um, they are not as um, brilliant as all that. Um, yeah, they, they they just deserve a sort of another crack of the whip. Okay, right. Well, we, well, you've got a list of what is that seven or eight? I think maybe a few more. We're also going to talk about a couple of the cars that you apparently should like. That you know, maybe the motoring media tells you you should like, but you don't. And a couple of those. I'm afraid I just don't agree with. I'm actually staggered that one of them at least is on your list. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll, I've got a couple of guilty pleasures and one that I'm going to basically troll you with. Um, so a few people have pointed out that we tend not to disagree on stuff. I think we're just sort of quite aligned, aren't we, with a lot yeah. of our points of view. But we're, we're definitely going to disagree on some stuff with this episode. No, oh, looking forward to it. Thank goodness for that. Okay, so from top to bottom, do you want to give us the first car? on your list this is a guilty pleasure a car that perhaps you shouldn't like but you just can't help yourself yeah um i'm gonna start with the g-wagon um you know i I think that we have um spoken at length on this podcast haven't we about um how our admiration for all things suv is kept fairly under control And, and you know those really big ones i mean you know i can admire them for what they do in their um, in their own way and in their own category, but I don't love any of them apart from a G wagon. And I just always so you, lo- you love you use that word. You do love a G wagon. I love a G wagon. I absolutely. I had one. Um, I say had one. Of course, it wasn't mine. In the way of all things motoring journalism, I borrowed it for a few months. Um, but it was one of the last of the old ones, an old so the the, the, the sort of the pre mega mega facelift car um, diesel, and it was. I mean, it was it was the it was the unluckiest car um, that I've ever had because although nothing mechanically went wrong with it, it got attacked by birds and a window shattered, and I ended up actually managing to I actually drowned it um, trying to do some <laughs> off road stuff with it, and it was just one of those cars. Every time I got it, something happened. But you know, I just I just loved it. I just what did I love about it? Uh, I love the sense of solidity about it. I love the no-nonsense approach of it. I mean, this was a car that became fashionable, like the Defender became fashionable, through absolutely just stoically avoiding anything to do with fashion whatsoever uh, and being and being authentic and people who wish to project an image wishing to sort of cash in on, on, on that authenticity. Um, and also, I just like the way that it sort of wobbles down the road. Um, it's strange, but um, I think I've said on this podcast before, uh, a car like a Defender is better on sort of off-road tyres than on-road tyres. Um, just because you know, it just you just feel a bit more connected, and it, it, sometimes being a bit less good at what a car does is actually makes the car a bit more enjoyable. And the fact is, a G Wag is not very good at anything at all. I mean, they're not quick. They are heinously um, terrible fuel consumption with them. Um, they're not quiet. They don't ride well. I can't really think of. I mean, they're, they're actually not even that space efficient. They've got big boots, but there's not much space. I can't really think of anything that they do amazingly well. They are pretty good off road. That has to be said. Um, but three locking know, I, diffs. Yeah, three locking diffs. But I don't think they're any better off road than a than a Defender or you know or, or, or probably a Range Rover. I'm not sure. I've not I've not done the back to back. But I just. I just love them. Um, I'll tell you something else about G-Bags. My, um, I, have a, I have a daughter. I have two daughters. Uh, one of them is, is, is not interested in cars at all, and the other one is only a tiny bit interested in cars, unless it's like a McLaren or a Ferrari, and then, yeah, she gets interested. And the only exception to that rule are G-Wagons. I can, rem- I can remember picking her up from school on the first day that this G-Wagon turned up, and I picked her up from school, and she looked me in the eye and said, Daddy, this is the best day of my life, including the one on which I was born. 
Um, wow. And, and she is, <laughs> you know, and she's not a car person, but there's just something about the G-Wagon which just connected with her. And yeah, so there you go. That's the first okay. one. So you ran one for a while. Um, what if it had been your only car and your money? Well, I couldn't have afforded it. I certainly well, I couldn't afford to buy it. And I certainly couldn't have afforded to to run it. So, you know, we're living in slightly la-la land here. But you know, there, were, there, were, there were probably some other choices on here, which in fact, I know there's at least one other choice on here, which, you know, is another car that I, I certainly couldn't afford. But I think we have to put ourselves in the position of we, people we who do. can. Because otherwise, you know, almost all the cars on the list wouldn't, wouldn't be on there. True. But if you had spent all of that money on your G-Wagon and it was actually quite bad to drive on the road, um, it, you know, and it was noisy and not particularly comfortable. Yeah, Do you think- I, couldn't, I wouldn't have cared less. Would, because you just feel good about being in them. And, and, and the truth is that none of those cars are that great. You know, compared to, what, you know, sort of an S-Class limo or, 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 or something conventional with the same amount of money could buy none of them are that quiet none of them are, are that comfortable you know they're, they're all high they're all heavy they're all a bit rubbish frankly because you know that is that that is the in, the inherent limitations of that kind of design uh, but what they don't all do is have that sense of occasion that you know that monday morning moment when you look out the window and you see it there in the street and it just puts a smile on your face and and, and you know any car that can get your week off to a good start um, however it does it is you know in, in my definition or certainly one sort of it um, a good car so there you okay. go I, I sort of get that but so we're, we're talking i'm talking about the facelifted one the new one yeah um off the top of your head can you tell me what the entry level price is it's about 90 isn't it it's 96 now for the diesel yeah it's a lot of money we're motor journalists and we live in bloody la la land i know that um <laughs> But you know, but you know, you know, they don't struggle to sell them, do they? Um, and you no. know, and there are people out there who who absolutely love them. So yes, I mean, they're, they're indefensible, apart from the fact that I'm defending them. Okay, I, I sort of get the charm. I do get the the character. Um, actually, I'd have a defender at half the price. Yeah, but uh, the thing. Okay, okay, so the G wagon is kind of you know this comes under the category of cars we shouldn't like but do. The defender to me is a car you should like because it's just a great car. Um, I, I've actually w- w- one turned up here about ten minutes ago, as is the way of such things. Um, and even just, you know, I just gave the bloke who delivered it a lift down to the bus station, uh, and driving it back up. And I just, I just thought this is, this is, you know, if you're going to have a car like that, this is the kind of car, this is the car that I would have. Um, but the G wagon is, you know, for a thick end of a hundred thousand pounds, it is, yeah, it's very, very hard to make a case for it, apart from the fact that you feel really, really good in it, and. That, to me, is the most important thing that cars like that should do. So, yeah, I still like it. Okay, good start. And actually, um, we don't need to be making logical cases for these cars, do we? We're just sort of explaining well, no, I think, why. Well, I, I, think, I think the entire point, I don't think I'm going to make, well, there might be one or two, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be making very, very many logical cases at all. I think the entire point of this is it's you know, cars that logic says you shouldn't like, but because they do something else or they have something else, somehow you do. Why is it then that this next car has made your list? Why is it that it's a car that you think you shouldn't really like oh well because it because it's absolutely terrible i mean uh, before i tell you what it is oh i tell people listening what it is have you driven one yeah not a great deal but yeah i have okay okay so the car we're talking about now is frankly either generation no actually no because i can't defend the first generation so the second generation (laughs) of mid-engine renault clear yeah the v6 yeah the v6 terrible car I mean, you know, if you got uh, whatever the front-engine Renault Sport 182 or what it was at the time, I mean, in, in, in all ways that matter, just a, just a massively better car for a, a fraction of the money. But I just... I, just, <laughs> I can't really... I mean, I mean, where do we start with them? I mean, they were so expensive, they were so rubbish, and they were so heavy, and they were so tricky to drive, and they weren't even that fast. They didn't they handle fast. well. They didn't do... Again, it's a car of another... They, they, they just... They didn't do anything particularly well, but they just, I mean, just the fact I'm just laughing thinking about them. Um, they, I was just very happy when I was in them. Um, and, uh, the first one was horrendous. The, the first one actually genuinely scared. It was such a poor handling car. It was so, I mean, I think the only word is vicious on the limit. I mean, I could to the extent that um, it's one of, I think, only one of two cars, the other being a Ferrari 348, that I specifically went to a test track because I just couldn't believe it was that bad. And deliberately just tried to spin it, or tried to not spin it, and just not being able to not spin it, you know, because both cars would just allow a little bit of slip, 
which you could correct and then if it literally went one degree further it was gone and it stayed gone um the second generation uh, because they I mean they they tried so they, they changed everything on that they even changed the wheelbase they actually made the wheelbase longer to try and make it a little bit more more stable um and even that was pretty tricky but wow i mean wow <laughs> it's, <just laughs> such a... it's, it's really interesting so i think this conversation is going to demonstrate that we don't just like cars because they're technically competent and that's no. just that's that's such a truism isn't it it's it's fundamental. We like cars that are characterful. That, and also, in the case of this one, cars that exist despite everything telling you, and more to the point, a big OEM, that they shouldn't exist at all. There's no rational case for them to be built. You actually did, didn't you, a while back. Uh, but it'd be worth digging out uh, a piece on DN about these cars. Yeah. Um, and it was a, I, I, I remember it very clearly. I mean, you were making exactly this point. And I think you were also saying that in this increasingly regulated and legislated world, um, that such cars are going to be more and more difficult to come by in future. And I, and I fear you're, you know, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's that image, isn't it, of the sort of boardroom table where all the heads of, you know, Renault are sitting there and they go around the table and all of them go, yep, that's a good idea, let's do it. <laughs> What was going on? What was going on? Because you don't even have to drive. You just look at it on paper and you just think something doesn't add, something doesn't add up here. Um, and it's and not the, just the fact that they put a V6 in a Clio. It's the fact they put a V6 in the middle of a Clio and made yes. it rear-wheel drive. I mean, yes. that as an engineering exercise is just staggering, isn't it? I mean, it just, I mean, you know, clearly they wouldn't have made any money on any of them. I guess they must have just thought it's it's worth it as a loss leader. There's going to be some, because this is going to be such an amazing car that people are going to, it's going to sort of sprinkle Stardust and all the other Clios in, in particular and Renault and generally uh, without actually bothering to think, well, actually, maybe it won't be such a brilliant car after all. Um, because a car with basically, you know, a really heavy car with no wheelbase um, is, 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 is always going to struggle. Um, and boy, did it. Um, I, you'll have to remind me of this. Were they actually quite supple ride-wise? Yeah, they were much too soft. That was one of the problems. Yeah, um, okay. And so you got this roll-induced oversteer at the back. Um, so you kind of, you know, you know if, you, if you did anything other than, you know, turn in and get back on the gas almost immediately, if you let it transition with forward weight transference, because it was just so soft at the back, it would just sort of start rolling um and then keep going and 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 as you will know as well as me you know that kind of slightly sickening roll induced power off oversteer on entry is um is is one of the least pleasant handling traits a a car can have no i mean if it was stiff as a board and just sort of pinged about uh, it would actually have been um more interesting more controllable but it, it wouldn't have rode um at all uh, and i suspect because the wheelbase was so short um that they thought well we better just give it some kind of ride quality or else we're really not going to sell any and 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 introduce a whole load of other problems as, as they did i don't know but um that would be my reading of it certainly okay well from one v6 renault to another or at least a, another renault that was available with a v6 and i suspect that's the one you find yourself drawn to um and again it's another good example of what the bloody hell was going on in the renault boardroom that day yeah avon time avon team how are you going to pronounce that Avant team, I think. Avant team. Ahead of its time? It wasn't I mean, there, was it? <laughs> it was head of a time in some parallel universe. Uh, <laughs> yes, it was like a sort of, let's, I don't let's think of a, a two-door MPV. I mean... Uh, that seats four. That seats four people. Let's, th- let, let, let's think of a car which looks one way and then just isn't at all in all the others. Um, I just think they're amazing looking cars. I don't really, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm as a person, I'm far more interested in how cars drive than how they look um but i just think they look fantastic um and then when you're in them there was just so much i mean they were rubbish to drive and i'm not even going to attempt to defend it in any dynamic sense but again it goes back to what you were saying there's a certain kind of spirit almost a sort of pioneering devil make a you know don't blind me with the facts uh, motivation behind it and they just thought we can do this car and we think it looks really, really cool. So we're just going to go and do it. Um, and you're right. It's not the kind of car that would ever get built today. But uh, I saw one actually in Paris a year or so back. And it's it's a cross the street kind of car. You know, it's the only MPV I would ever cross the street to go and have a look at. I mean, I can't imagine ever going and looking at an Espace or a Toyota Previa. But you see an Avalon team, sorry, um, in the street. You just want to go and, you know, marvel at the fact that it exists. 
Um, that that's it. You have to just applaud the fact that they they built the bloody thing because it must have been commercially a disaster. I just oh, I think it was. I mean, it, it was only on sale for about ten minutes, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Are we going to do some? Are we going to do some of yours in a minute, or we're we just going to continue to rattle through mine? All right, do 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 the next one of yours, and I'll pick out the one that I want to do. Uh, where are we going to now? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, this is this is this these days talking to a modern audience. This is how old I am. This is a this is a bit niche because it's the Vauxhall Chevette. And do you know the really terrible thing? I'm not even talking about you know the HS or HSR versions. I'm just talking about the everyday commoner garden Vauxhall Chevette. And I've never even driven one, so this is going to be a very short <laughs> conversation. So I, I'm not going to suddenly turn around to you and go, oh, you've no idea how good these things are. I suspect they're rubbish. I just thought they were a really nice bit of design, particularly the preset, pre-facelift cars with the uh, recessed front lights. Um, and I saw what I was a judge at a thing last year called the Festival of the Unexceptional, uh, where people turn up in all their rubbish cars. Uh, and there were, you know, all the usual sort of, you know, Triumph Dolomites and Morris Marinas and, you know, Austrian Allegros and all that lot turned up. And there in the middle of this was this Chevette. And I just thought to myself, that's a really nice piece of car design that's been completely forgotten. You know, I think anybody listening to this ever thinks about Chevette, they think of, you know, a rally car. And I have driven an HS Chevette and it is great, but that's not the car I'm talking about. It's just, as I say, the, you know, the everyday thing. What would it have been? A Fiesta rival, a Polo rival, that sort of thing. Um, and I just, I just really liked it. So it's not even the fact that it's a rear wheel drive little family car that you no, like. No, I haven't it's, driven one, so I don't know whether yeah. that actually plays to its strengths or not. I just, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have put it in there. I should probably list, restrict my <laughs> list at least to cars that I've driven, but I think it is the only one on the list that I haven't driven. Okay. Um, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us underway with uh, some of mine. And, uh, okay, I'll take your lead and go with a car that I've not driven. Um, I just happen to think that the new Nissan Duke looks fantastic. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I think the the previous one, the first gen, looked ridiculous. Like, it was in intentionally weird just to try and get some attention or something. But the way that... I think they finally made that very striking design actually work. I think it's... You know, it's a, it's a, it's a crossover, isn't it? But it's the only one that, to me, actually looks distinctive and has a character um, based on the way it looks. And I just, I just applaud Nissan for choosing to be so bold with its design and uh, plenty of other people will think it looks terrible but i just think it's great when car manufacturers actually do do something a little bit quirky and a bit distinctive apart from bmw with its awful grills but bmw aside i i just think they look great Hmm. good well there you go so this is going to be our first substantial point of disagreement I, i i think if you're going to go down that road you've got to commit and i didn't like the way the last one looked but um at least they committed i mean they decided that they were going to go completely i was about to say a rude word then um crazy with it um and they did and you know i i I didn't like it but at least i admire that and this is to me a kind of well we did that and we did really really well with it but we don't want to do anything quite as uh radical as that again so we'll just sort of turn it down to seven or eight um which to me given that what you're talking about underneath is a crossover SUV, and I don't think that anybody listening to this will be under any illusion to what our views about that particular genre of car is like. You know, so it's basically, it's a type of car with the one thing that it had going for it diluted. Um, so, um, I, and I haven't driven one either, so I'm not, I'm not making any particular comments about how that car drives, but you know, crossover SUVs are my least favourite kind of car. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, as I said, the old, the, 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 the old one did at least have the advantage, genuinely stood out for the crowd. Whether it did so for the right reasons or not is something that you know we we we, we can talk about. But mm. this one is just like that, but less so. So yeah. okay, all right, fair enough. I'll move on to uh, my next one, and I think it's possibly been consistently over the years, with few exceptions, been the most sort of mundane, tedious, dull car on the road. But having used one for best part of a year, more than a year probably, I just think they're fantastic at what they do. Okay, and that's the VW Passat. Oh god, I thought you were about to say Vauxhall Insignia, and then we're going to have a real punch up. <laughs> oh no, um, no, no, no! No, I'm afraid I agree with you. I absolutely, I hate to say this, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the amount of conversations I've had with people, particularly people with families, who ring me up and go, "Well, what should I buy?" And we go round and round the houses, and we always end up with a Passat Estate. 
Yeah, so I like the fact that they even design them to look dull, just because that's yeah. not the point. They're not supposed to look striking or, you know, whatever. If, if you want a more distinctive-looking VW, you get the Arteon. That looks quite cool. But I just think of Passat, that it's, it knows exactly what it is and what it's supposed to do. They're, they're tough and practical, particularly in the state one. They're, they're huge, um, and they, they're also comfortable, though. You know, they're just, for using every day, for long journeys, they're just effortless, um, I had one for a while and it was a bit annoying because the air conditioning didn't work and none of the windows went down. So on a hot day, you were a bit stuffed. You'd have to drive with the door open as well, you know, when you could. Um, but that side, it was so comfortable. The seats yeah. were great. It was, yeah. it was really squishy in terms of the ride. Um, I, I think, thinking about it now, my Passat thing started just over a decade ago. Yeah, right, a bit more than that when I was on a horrendously long drive as a passenger in the back of a pickup. You know, the, they, they have the, the little bench seat in the back, don't they? And they're awful places to spend time because your knees are around your ears. You've got no headroom. And oh, it's you, not, were, it, got, you were all the way back there, were you? Yeah, it was, it, there were four of us in this thing. We we're towing a rally car. We were going from Bristol to Sweden to go ice driving. And that, I think we were driving for 20-odd hours. Um, up to Newcastle, across to Norway, and then driving up um, into Sweden to the lake. And we were in this thing for 20-odd hours, maybe more than that. And we were sat in traffic outside a city somewhere. I can't remember which one. Um, and I was, I'd been in this thing so long, and I felt so uncomfortable in there, just aching all over. And a, a Passat pulled up alongside me, and I remember peering down into its cabin and just thinking it looked like the most luxurious space <laughs> I could possibly imagine. Yeah, and ever since I then, I just thought, yeah, I, I, like, I get them. The, the story, which I think I, must, I think I pitched it once, but it didn't, um, nobody was interested. But the story I'd really like to do, because I think it would have some surprising conclusions, is to get a Passat and then group test it alongside all the really premium cars. So get an A6 and get a 5 Series and get an E-Class and just see how what those cars beyond their premium brand positioning are actually giving you that a passat doesn't because i don't think those cars would ride much better than a passat i don't think that they would be much quieter than a passat um, they would certainly be a whole lot more expensive than a passat um and i just think that you get a huge amount of yes unbelievably boring car for your money but <laughs> even so you know that's not what it's for is it if you just no. want something that you can do anything with um, and turn up anywhere and go anywhere. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid. Um, I absolutely agree with you. I'm a, I'm a, but not a, a big Passat fan. Would suggest that I somehow really, really like Passat. <laughs> I don't. I just, I just think they're really good cars, and it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, we do like an Aspat. Um, okay, so let's go back to one of yours. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm going to pick it out for you um, because you wrote about these cars on Drive Nation what a couple of weeks ago, and the post went down a storm. Um, loads of people commented, loads of people commented, lots of readers seem to have very fond memories of this particular car from their youth, from their childhood, and that's the Mini Metro. Yes, yes. I mean, they are sort of figures of fun now, aren't they? Um, they are. Mini Metros. People look at them and, you know, feel sorry for anybody who was, who was in them, and they seem to you know, um, say all sorts of things about what was really bad about the British motor industry in the late 70s, and it's always British Leyland and everything. You're completely forgetting the fact that when it came out, it was class-leading car. It absolutely was. It was, you know, it, it was the most space-efficient small family car to have come out since the Mini came out in 1959. Uh, it was amazingly comfortable on that, you know, on that clever, whatever they called it, hydrogas, hydroelastic um, suspension. I mean, the engines were let it down uh in the first generation um but then they sorted that out with when they stuck the k series and the five series and the five speed gearbox in it um and i just thought that yeah um i mean i had i think i wrote about it um this mg metro which which um met its end in a in a traffic jam while i was ferreting around on the dashboard playing with my graphic equalizers at the time but you know that was you know that was a really really good fun car and they were never that expensive and you know I, I've I've just I've just always it's not so much that I've liked them it's just that I've always thought that they they deserved a much uh, easier time particularly from the press and particularly from 
the view of posterity than than they got. And actually, the second generation cars, which must have been come out in about, oh, I'm going to get this horribly wrong, but I would say about 1990, which were the ones which had the brand new K-series Rover engine in it. And you will know, as well as I do, just what a fantastic engine that was. It was fantastic because you know, it was powerful, it was strong, but it was incredibly light as well. Um, which is why you know they found their way into so many caterums and things like that. Um, but in the front of a little um, hatchback, um, there were wonders, and those were cracking little cars to drive. Um, and you know, I had a 1.1 S long termer, which I, I I drove into a field. Um, <laughs> but before I did that, um, it was it was a great little car, and I was very very happy, you know, bombing about the place in that. And I just think that. You know, certain cars, don't they, um, you know, appear to be una- unable to do, you know, any bad over time. You know, I'm thinking about things like Polos and Golfs and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And the Metro has just been sort of lumped in with all those other terrible BL cars. Um, and it, it just wasn't like that. It was a really, really good car. I mean, OK, there were some bad ones. I mean, the MG Metro Turbo was punching so far above its weight uh, it wasn't true um, but in the main um, the sort of mainstream cars were really good um, and I think I'd just like to tell the world that there you go <laughs> okay didn't um, Andy Palmer respond to your DN post oh he did didn't he yes the, 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 the former Aston Martin Andy Palmer rather than the McLaren yeah. um, Andy Palmer and wasn't he what was he doing wasn't he involved in engineering the gearboxes for the for, for them back in the early 1990s and, and he and he thought it was a really underrated car. Yeah, but he also commented on the K series, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think he was he was talking about what a, about the development of that engine, and they all knew at the time that it was a, a brilliant little thing, well above, you know, really highly specced for the use that it would be put to. Well, I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, it started, you know, it, it was capable of being a one point one liter shopping car engine, and it was also, I mean, it went to. I mean, goodness knows what guys like Minister got it up to, you know, past 200 horsepower in the crazier um, caterums. And it stretched from what, and it was, it was, yeah, I mean, when it came out, it was the best engine of its kind in the world. And it won all sorts of awards. Um, and, and, you know, even things like, they stuck it in things like the Rover 200 and, you know, stuff like that, which we, we, we would never otherwise talk about on this podcast. But yeah, anything that ended up with that engine in it, it just got, a certain something didn't it it just suddenly had a reason for being you know you got into a car with a k-series engine you knew that if nothing else the powertrain would be great mm. okay right let's move on to one of your other ones do you want to pick and choose well i mean we, we're gonna to have to get there aren't we i'm go- uh, yeah so so um the next car okay so this is a car which everybody would regard as a as a good car so maybe it shouldn't qualify for cars that i like more than i should but nevertheless it's also a car that has had a complete kicking over the times, and sometimes from me. So I'm talk- the car I'm talking about is the four-cylinder Cayman, Porsche Cayman with a two or two and a half litre four-cylinder turbo engine that replaced the flat six that had been in it um, from birth. And, you know, I have said, as has everybody else, that the noise is terrible. It's not a fitting engine to have um, in a car like that. But I think, and the reason I mention it now is that people are so keen to give that engine a kicking. And I think probably motoring journalists do it because we spend so much of our time raving on about Porsches and how good they are. A, that's really boring. And B, I think we all fear that people who read what we write think that we were either being paid by Porsche, we've lost all objectivity and we're rubbish at our jobs. And then here's something about a Porsche we don't like. So we've really got to get stuck into that. And <laughs> that I think true. that's, and I think, you know, I think that's, I think that's actually fair enough. But what isn't fair enough is to be blind to the benefits that that engine brought. And in two respects, it's actually, it actually does the Cayman and the Boxster a favour. Um, the first is, as we've also spoken about on this podcast, it makes sense of the gear ratios. So these cars always have very, very long gear ratios. Uh, and, you know, I think probably for em- emissions reasons. And the previous flat sixes, um, they just didn't have the torque um, to to pull the gears. And, you know, when you have a sort of second gear, which would do 70 miles an hour, a third, which would do 90 or 100, whatever, it just didn't make sense. And it was always really annoying because you're always changing down. You're always trying to find the torque. And then suddenly these turbo engines come along with a big fat chunk of mid-range torque. And suddenly the gear ratios make sense. Uh, and in that respect, it actually was a technically 
even if it didn't sound it, it was a more capable powertrain than the one it replaced. And secondly, the other thing about the previous Caymans and Boxsters was however sweet their flat six engines were, they never doled out enough work for the chassis. And they always, those cars always came across as being, you know, slightly uh, under-engined. Uh, you know, I love cars that, you know, to me, have the correct balance between power and grip. Uh, and I think one of the very few criticisms you could lay at those early Caymans is that they didn't. Um, and then suddenly, here again, that mid-range torque came along and it actually, you know, it kind of brought the chassis to life. And you suddenly found yourself that you could balance a car on the edge of adhesion on the way out of a corner where that just wouldn't have been possible um, with the old one. So, you know, while I, you know, if, if the engine were to die tomorrow and all subsequent ones were to be flat sixes, I, I, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. But I just don't want anyone thinking that that four-cylinder engine was, was all bad news because it wasn't. Disagree. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Do you excellent. know what? You're, you're right about the torque thing. You, you are right about that. But um, I just think that in a Porsche in particular, um, the soundtrack is fundamentally important. And I get what you're saying about coming out of a corner and using the torque to balance the car. But, I, you know, realistically... maybe you do but I don't do that very often unless I'm specifically out for a very quick drive Um, and I think what I enjoy much more about a a Porsche and say yeah particularly a Cayman is the way its engine sounds and the way its engine delivers its power in that linear way building to a crescendo with a a sweet soundtrack uh, rather than what to me sounds like a very coarse very unpleasant sound from that that four-cylinder so I would always just have the previous Cayman, a 981, rather than the, the 982, isn't it? I'd, you know, even if I had the budget to buy the later car, I'd just, I'd just get the best previous shape one I could. I know what you mean. And I'm not even saying that I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but just, just because the previous one is better doesn't make okay. this one rubbish. Um, and, and, and all I'm seeking to do here, I'm not even really trying to defend the car because... I, you know, you, of course you're right about the noise and that sort of thing. And I, and I also understand what you're talking about building to a crescendo. Although I, I always like mid-range torque in a car. Um, and if it can be provided by a large capacity, as it is now that they've got the 4-litre engine in the, uh, in the GTS and the GT4, um, then so much the better. Um, but I, yeah, as I said, I, all I was trying to do was to make the case that it wasn't all bad news because I think that that is probably the way that engine is perceived by, by most people. Okay, fair enough. Right, now I want to quiz you about a particular car on your list uh, and then maybe we'll do a couple of mine. Um, talk to me about the McLaren GT. Uh, okay, okay. Um, McLaren GT. Uh, I think the thing about it, I think I think the car's got two problems, uh, but it's on my list because I think that, um, despite all that, I still think it's a really good car. And I say this as someone, I'm very aware of this. I tend to, when I talk about McLarens, or write about McLarens, you know, it's very rare that I, I, I that, that I get stuck into them. And I think it's just because, you know, the sort of things that I want in a car, which uh, I want them to be light and I want them to sort of feel great in my hands. Uh, that's that's just that's just what's important to McLaren. So I don't think it's any great coincidence that the sorts of cars that they make tend to be the sorts of cars that I, I enjoy driving. Um, but the GT, um, I think the bigger problem, but the biggest problem with it is the name, because um, I think that does two things. I think one, I, th- I think the first thing it does is it makes people think, well, that's not a McLaren. You know, McLarens are unbelievably sporting cars. Um, McLarens are supercars, and if they're not supercars, they're they're hypercars. Um, and I think that that sends out the wrong kind of message. You know, let's not forget that McLaren Automotive is still a very young company. It's whatever it is. It's 10 years old. Um, barely that. Um, and it's not like Ferrari. Uh, you know, Ferrari made its first GT in 1960. Made its first... Okay, that was a 2 plus 2. Um, but you know, it's been making that kind of car for 60 years now. Um, McLaren's been doing it for about two. Um, and I still think that people aren't quite comfortable with a McLaren, which goes the other way. It sort of swims against the tide of what people expect a McLaren to be. I think the second problem is that it's actually not a very good GT insofar as it's not a two plus two. Um, and to me, GTs probably should be. 
Um, it's not particularly quiet um, because it's got a flat plane crank V8 right behind your head. Um, and the noise it makes isn't even a particularly um, pleasant noise for a GT. And if you're going to be spending whatever it is, 150, 160 grand on that kind of car, I mean, you know, you can go and buy Aston Martins with the most glorious sounding V12 motors in them. Um, and those to me are the proper GTs. Um, those are the cars that make you, you know, when I think of a GT, I think about sort of, you know, wafting off to the south of France um, or whatever, doing those sort of traditional European, well, Grand Tours for want of a better word. Um, and, you know, I don't think of cars like the McLaren GT when I think about the sort of cars that we best about that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's what counts against it. I think that's why probably I understand some some countries actually it's selling really really well, but I don't think it's done particularly well in the UK. Um, but I, I but I think it's I think it's a misunderstood car, and I think McLaren is probably largely to blame for that misunderstanding because you know they wanted to um, separate it, didn't they? They wanted it to be seen as a distinct product to everything else that they made, and I understand that because you know it had already been accused of just sort of you know, um, getting the same ingredients, chucking them in the air and, you know, putting them back together in a slightly different way, but not actually doing anything fundamentally different. So I get what the desire to give it a new name, um, give it a new positioning and say, look, here is our GT. And this is, what do they call it? They call it the McLaren of GTs, don't they? Um, but ultimately, it's just not a very good GT. But as an everyday supercar... That's so, it, yeah. Give it a different title. Wow. Yeah, it's a more usable kind of supercar, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've spent a bit of time um, in a GT recently. And, you know, it's actually, I think probably the greatest compliment I can pay it is the kind of thing that I'd normally say about something like a 911 is you're not even really aware you're in a McLaren. You don't think of it as being, oh, God, this is a McLaren. You just think of it as a sort of the ultimate all-purpose everyday weapon. You just get in it and... Um, it just works because you can see out of it so well. Um, you know, it's really comfortable. The ride's fantastic. It's got a huge amount of space in it for your luggage up the front and then again in the back. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, there are very, very few journeys for which you think, oh, that, that, that way, that would be inappropriate or that's just not suitable. Um, and, you know, to me, it's actually, although it's obviously a very modern car, it's a kind of throwback to cars like, you know, the Ferrari Daytona, um, you know, which, which weren't GTs at all, but they were very usable supercars. Um, and I think there is a big distinction because to me, GTs, a GT car, if I think of a GT car, I think of either a Bentley Continental GT, which I think is a really, really good car, but I don't think of it as being a great driver's car. Um, whereas a McLaren GT, because it's so much more a McLaren than it is a GT, despite the name they've given it, um, it's a fabulous driver's car. I mean, it's heavier than most McLarens, but compared to other cars, it's still really, really light. It's still got the hydraulic steering and it's still got ludicrous amounts of power. And it's got really clever suspension on it as well. It's not uh, quite the full fat, um, completely interactive system that you get on a 70, 720S. It's a kind of hybrid between that and the passive system you get on a 570S. But what it has enabled them to do is to introduce um you know a very great deal of control while still preserving fantastic ride quality which again you know just plays to those strengths it has as a as a, as a long distance driving machine uh rather than a sort of you know heavy roly-poly touring grand gt kind of car mm. it's you, you, yeah it's the name that's kind of troubling isn't it because it's not a traditional grand tour by any stretch yeah um, yeah but but, but, and, we're, but we're here to judge cars aren't we not the perhaps um ill-advised names that their creators give them um, and i think one of the jobs is to see through you know any car's name is basically a marketing exercise isn't it and one of our jobs is to see through that to the car below and to judge it for what it is not for what its manufacturer chooses to call it um and yeah, as I said, you know, great all-purpose supercar. I'm going to jump from one McLaren to another, um, a car that is, I suppose, one of my guilty pleasures. And before I reveal what it is, exactly which one it is, the thing about this car is that it's become very, very fashionable to have a real dig at it, have a real pop at it, um, because, and it's true, it does look absurd, really oh, absurd. Oh, I know where you go. I know where you go. <laughs> and I'd far rather go racing, of course, but I've 
driven these cars on track, actually only on track. And both times that I have done, I've stepped out of them utterly blown away, coursing with adrenaline. Adrenaline, You know, my throat has been hoarse because I've been shouting down a camera, just so excited and so energised by it. And it's what? It's what, Andrew? It's a Senna. (laughs) It is a Senna. Um, Do you... I don't know. It's kind of paradoxical, isn't it, calling it a guilty pleasure because it's an 800 horsepower supercar. It's a McLaren, a hypercar, really. Why should it be guilty? But it's... Do you see what I'm saying? You know, it's... it's become a, it's coming through an awful lot of criticism. It um, has, yeah. And I've I've only ever had a, a wonderful time driving them. Okay, um, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna make two points. Um, first point I would make uh, is that it's limited on a track. I'm gonna make three points. One is it's terrible on the road. I've driven them on the roads, and you know, I mean. It's yeah. I mean, the 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 ride is terrible, and it, you're just fighting it all the time, and it and it's not very pleasant on the road. Um, but it's not designed to be a road car, so maybe we can forgive it that. Um, but on a track, you know, I just find you know it's it's the first car that I've driven with, um, a road car I've driven with, you know, really significant downforce, and to me that just revealed um, just how limited the, a, a street tire is on a car with an awful lot of downforce. Um, and it did get, I think, some. I mean, some people went in a lot harder than me, um, but it does understeer uh, on the track, and those what it's got Pirelli Trofeo R tyres um, are, are, are just you know it's it's like the cork in the bottle, isn't it? Um, and I've I've driven a GTR on slicks, and you know, um, and it, and it's just like a completely different world. Um, so that's that's one thing. The second thing I would say um, is, as have you, I've driven a seven six five LT which is kind of like a third of the money of the Senna. And there is nothing a Senna does that, um, you know, I wouldn't be... What am I trying to say? Um, a 765 LT does everything that I want a track-based McLaren to do, and there's nothing that a Senna does over and above that, which I find particularly um, important to me. Um, I much prefer the balance of the 765 LT. It's only like a couple of seconds a lap slower than a Senna, which means it is still pant-wettingly fast. Um, but, you know, you can... All this stuff we've talked about before. You can use it. It's, you know, I've driven it on the road now. It's got a really good ride. I've driven it in the wet now as well. I don't understand the people who had such an issue with it um, in slightly tricky conditions. Um, I drove it around a bit appallingly wet Castle Coombe um, and just... I just thought it was really, really um, engaging, and to me, it's you know, it, it's twice the car that a Senna is for a third of the money. Actually, I don't disagree with you on the the LT sort of showing up the the Senna to some extent. Um, okay, we we need to rattle on because we we have to discuss some of the cars that you apparently should like but just don't. Um, <sighs> so, explain to me why you so dislike the Nissan GTR. I've just never seen it. I've just, I've never, wow. I mean, I know I'm going to get myself into all sorts of problems here because I know there'll be all sorts of people listening to this who are probably involved in this development, certainly people who, you know, have had them and have them. And to me, it's just the ultimate sort of blunt instrument. Um, wow. I, you know, okay, let me put this, I mean, you know, when they came out, it was in the era of the sort of the late Mitsubishi Evo cars. Um and I just always preferred them. They were massively cheaper. They weren't, to me, that much slower. And they were just much more engaging cars to drive. Um, and, you know, the way the GTR... I never thought that GTRs had a great deal of feel to them. The feel, the feel of a car is probably the single most important thing to me about a way a car drives. Um, you know, I didn't really appreciate the wham-bam delivery of the power. They've always been heavy um i've just i've never I've, okay I've, I've never got to myself to a stage in a gtr where i've just sat there and thought wow this car's on my side this car is my friend it's the two of us against the world and we're just having an absolute blast i've always felt that i've been managing it i've been looking out for it i've never particularly although i've never got myself into trouble in one um i've never particularly trusted them um, I'm, and it's just it's just weird because I know that other people and other people you know who I really uh, respect and admire 
think they're completely brilliant, but I've, I've just, it's just, a, maybe I've got a mental block. I've just never got it. Hmm, that's really interesting because I, I do get them. I, I understand that they have certain flaws. Um, they're, they're a bit of a pain to use daily, but I love that they're so analog. They're so mechanical, the way they thump, thunk around when you're driving, you know, through a car park or when you engage, drive. Um, I think they steer really well. I think there's a delicacy to the steering that sort of belies the car's sort of forceful way and its size and weight. Um, I think they're actually nicely adjustable on the road. They're not just clamped. You can actually sort of toy with them a little bit. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear that you just don't agree. But we, we you know, we're not here to, to to try and convince the other person. No, but no, but just on that point, you know, and just briefly return to the seven six five purely to illustrate that point. Uh, we didn't really agree on that, and you know, and, and I still don't understand why those who um, were very critical of the way the seven six five LT handles um, why they came to that point of view. But I'm not saying for a moment that you or they are wrong. I think sometimes it comes down to individual choices. I think it also sometimes comes down to individual driving styles. And it may just be, because everybody drives cars differently, that the way I drive cars creates one set of responses from a car and somebody else getting in it. You know, I'm not one of these guys, for instance, who spends their entire life, you know, wanting to see how sideways I can go. It's not particularly um, important to me. Um, I like cars that, you know, I like cars that have sort of, you know, neutral handling um, and oversteer a bit. But, um, you know, the sort of people who, you know, love spending all their time at 45 degrees to the intended angle of travel, you know, aren't, aren't going to have a great time in a car with an open differential. Um, so, you know, so I, I don't wish really to go back to the 765 any more than that, but literally just to say that, you know, there's no right or wrong here, is there? Yeah, you know, it's right. not a question of, you know, I've got the GTR right and you failed to appreciate its failings. It's just that different people get different things out of these cars. I mean, you're right to say that, except that you're entirely wrong about the next car that's on your list. <laughs> What, tell me why you dislike what to me is one of the finest four-door super saloons or sports saloons of all time, the Alpha Julia Quadrifoglio. I didn't say I didn't like it. Ah, come on. What don't you like about it then? It's overrated. Mm, interesting. What lets okay. it down? Okay. Um, what, what is overrated about it? Just doesn't, to me, it just doesn't steer properly. And, you know, as the... The fundamental interface between man and machine is the steering. Um, and if a car, you could have the car which in all other regards is the best car. It, it's why I've had such problems with, I mean, they're not so much like that these days. Um, but Ferraris, particularly things like, um, you know, F12s and that sort of thing. You know, which yeah, have the hyperactive steering, you mean. Very aggressive off-center steering response. Um, and... The the Alpha has a bit of that, it and does. to me, it's not. And and also, I don't think it's got a great deal of steering feel, which, as I've already said, is terribly important to me. Um, the engine is, you know, for a turbo engine, it's not like it's got some you know massive, wonderful, normally aspirated thing in there. But for a turbo motor, I can absolutely see that engine. It sounds pretty good, and it does a pretty good job. So hats off to them for that. And I think the chassis is reasonably well balanced. I still think it's a it's a little bit. I, I, you know, I do find those cars just a bit difficult to judge when they start to slide, but I think that's probably as much a factor of the steering as anything else because I'm not getting the correct response or feel through it. And, you know, but again, maybe it's just me. Um, but, you know, if I, okay, if, you know, if you think about what it's, the kind of cars that it's up against, I would be so much more confident driving a, you know, a C63 AMG. Um, wow. I just would. Um and 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 good though the Alpha engine in is it ain't as good as that AMG V8 in my book not even no, close. No, um, it's not. And so what are we left with? We're left with a car. It has an absolutely appeal and a legitimate appeal by not being yet another German super saloon, um, because I think that there is a certain sort of iconoclastic uh, kudos that goes with that, and I think that you know it's not. I don't particularly feel that way because i just can't judge cars on their merits but I'd, I'd understand someone who did it does look amazing um so i think it's got that going for it but again you know i just come back to what's it what it's like to drive and i've never felt really at home in one maybe i need to spend more time i haven't I mean, that's I've so interesting on a couple of occasions and i've done a couple of you know half decent journeys but i've never driven one on a track and maybe i just haven't spent enough time really really you know, driving them 
you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, I've just never done it for me. The steering is very sharp off centre. I I find that I'm able to sort of adjust to that and get on with it. And then beyond that, I just find wonderful poise. You can knock the dampers back and it's lovely and supple, which really works on our roads. I love the balance. I love that it's progressive, the way it goes into a slide, particularly compared to an M3 with the, you know, the previous one, which will, you'll give, put some throttle in, you'll get a big torque dump and it'll just snap into oversteer. Whereas the Alpha for me just sort of bleeds in really nicely, a bit more like an M2. Um, and ah, I don't know. There we go. Anyway, um, so we, we might disagree slightly on that car. I, th- I think we're going to disagree more on the one car I'm going to give you that I apparently should like, but just don't. Um, I've, just, I've never got old Land Rovers, Defenders. <laughs> and me saying That's this to you... That's because you've got no soul, Dan. The, me saying this to you is just trolling, really. <laughs> I'm just trying to provoke you. No soul. Wow. So yeah, yeah, I mean, people need to know that you still own the, the series. Is it a Series 3? A Series you, 3, yeah. That you pass your driving test in. So yes. clearly they have a special place in your heart. Yes. So <laughs> to me... I, Maybe it's just I've never had a use for that kind of vehicle, but I just I don't want to spend my time on the road in something where I, I can't put my right arm anywhere. It's noisy and rattly and difficult and ah, don't get it. Okay, uh, it's interesting. So I was talking to our mate Chris Harris about this very thing only yesterday, and he was say, he was he was talking about what what you, he was saying exactly what you were saying. He said I just don't get old defenders. I just you know they're just not my cup of tea, and I did turn around to him and say yeah, but. You did own one once, didn't you? You have yeah. actually gone out and bought one. Uh, and he was said, yeah, but I only kept it for 10 minutes. I he, he didn't have it for very long. I think it, that, that was the car which turned him against them. I think he just thought that they were, um, they had this kind of stellar reputation and the car that he bought in no way lived up to it. And, and I can't pretend for a moment to be in any way objective about it. Um, you know, I learned to drive in these bloody things. I passed my test in this thing. Um, it's been part of my life for the last, oh, I don't even think, um, you know, 30-something years. Um, what's good about them? Um, I'm going to struggle here. There's nothing good about them. It's a rubbish car. It's absolutely terrible. It doesn't ride. It doesn't handle. I mean, they are very good off-road, but um, I love the way they look, but maybe that shouldn't be very important. I, I, okay, I just love their honesty. There is absolutely no bullshit about that car whatsoever. It is the ultimate nuts and bolts back to basics get in it and do what you need to do kind of car and when we live in an era where we get so much slickly marketed mediocrity chucked at us um crossover suvs um you know in in particular and you know to get in a car that is it's it's basically meccano um but it's so you're talking about the gtr and how you love how you love the fact that it felt mechanical Try a Series 3 Land Rover if you want mechanical. I mean, it's the most mechanical thing on earth. I mean, it's you can almost see the cogs whirring. It's just... <laughs> okay. <sighs> you, you, make, you, you do make and, a and, and, and also, I live in a remote part of the world, um, and it snows here most years. Um, and what, what, I, what I love about it is when we have really bad weather, um, and people tend to... Uh, I was about to another, use, use another rude word. Um, drive around here in their expensive new hundred grand SUVs, and then the weather comes and they all disappear. And what happens is you discover that everybody has got a Defender sat in the shed somewhere. And just you know, it's 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 basically you know when the weather's really bad around here, it becomes Daihatsu four tracks, the old Suzuki Vitara, and Defenders or Series Land Rovers, and that's what people go about the place in and i love cars that know what they are for and i've talked about this before on the, on the podcast in the same way that you know i love ferrari f40 because goodness me that knows what it's for um and you go out in that kind of weather in my old series 3 land rover with its chunky tires on on all that ground clearance um and you spend your weekend pulling people out of snow drifts and just you know ferrying people to the pub because they got no other way of getting there um and you just feel you just feel happy to have it um you just feel happy about being in it and you know okay i, I wake up in the morning i look out the window and i see a whiteout i don't think oh god you know you know the, the, the end of play for the foreseeable i think Let's get the Land Rover out and go and have a play. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have been in it um, in conditions where I've known where the road was only because it's the bit that didn't have trees growing out of it. 
Um, and literally, I would I would drive down the road by looking and thinking, well, there are trees over there, and there are trees over there. There's no trees. That's where the road must be. And it just it just does it and i absolutely love it and i won't have a word said against it and i can't really believe that you'd bring that up okay well i mean it's it's fun hearing you talk about it and it's quite clear that you're not making it up for effect um so we are going to bust the one hour mark i suspect but that doesn't really matter because the next thing i want to talk about is quite important and also potentially very funny um you did mention chris harris so tell us about the fun you've been trying to have in your two cvs it wouldn't be so bad if this hadn't been all his idea, okay? <laughs> so he rang me up, and um, I'm sure lots of people listening to this will know about Mission Motorsports. It's a forces charity, and uh, their um, motto is um, race, retrain, recover. So what they do is they take um, injured former, former service personnel, um, uh, people who maybe have suffered terrible physical trauma or maybe really, really struggling with PTSD. Um, and through um, motor racing, either driving cars or being part of pit crew or just being in and around racing cars, um, they provide these people with a new sense of purpose. They give them their mojo back and then they place them in jobs in the industry and they do absolutely incredible stuff. Um, and you know, I've known the people who, um, who have run it for a while now and every November they have this thing called the race of remembrance, which we've written about extensively on DM before, uh, which is a 12 hour race up in Anglesey with the most moving, um, service on remembrance Sunday in the pit lane that you could ever imagine. But of course this year, um, they can't do that. Um, and so they had, uh, their virtual service. Well, they went down to Thruxton and people could um, look in online, but it wasn't quite the same thing. So Chris rang me up and he said, because we both own silly old 1950s 425cc 2CVs, and we've always had a bit of banter on Twitter about who's got the better one, and people have often said, you ought to have a race. And so Chris rang me up and said, let's have a race. So I thought, well, fair enough. I mean, Chris's car is a complete shed. Um, it's uh, he, he reckons it's mechanically quite good, but we'll see about that. Um, but physically, it presents. I mean, it's 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 in horrendous condition. Uh, he calls it nicely patinated. I call it a ruin. Um, but uh, the idea was, was you know, because two CVs have always sort of gone across fields and that sort of thing. I'm not going to have a basket of eggs next to me, but we'd have a race across a field. So I duly turned up on Friday afternoon. Uh, sorry, Friday. Yeah, it was Friday afternoon um, to discover him and his two CV, which he'd left in said field for a number of months and it wouldn't start. Uh, and so instead of having a race, uh, I spent um, a couple of hours trying to get this thing to start and it wouldn't start. Uh, and then we were going to have another go. Um, but uh, he suddenly realized he needed outside assistance to get it to start. And he finally sent me a um a video of the car running uh, i don't know who he got but presumably he'd gone and hired some whiz bang mechanics from somewhere who'd spent you know a considerable period of time rebuilding this car and finally getting it going uh, so i thought we we're going to go and do the race then but it turns out it still it may work it may run but it doesn't actually move at the moment so we're still waiting um for the great frankel harris 2cv race to take place um and i'm sure that it will and i'm sure it'll be fun uh, i'm really worried because my car's really nice um and i think that driving it as fast as i possibly can across a field probably isn't going to be very good for it um, um which is why he'll probably win because he will uh, <laughs> he, uh, he care. will care far more about winning <laughs> than he does about his car whereas i'll care far more about my car than i do about winning so he's probably already won it but um yeah, um, and I think the, the forfeit's going to be a yard of ale and something horrendous involving a root vegetable. So um, we'll see about that. But um, as and when it happens, <laughs> if and when it happens, I shall report back. And the point is, it's going to be a lot of fun, but the, the point is to raise a bit of money for Mission absolutely. Motorsport, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, and we will um, put the, um, the Just Giving uh, address in the blurb for this uh, podcast, and it's also in my bio on Instagram, which is... Uh, frankel andrew um so if yeah i mean the whole point of it is is that you know we're going to go and do this in the hope that people will find it sufficiently stupid and funny that they might want to put their hands in their pocket and give mission motorsport um you know a little bit of bunts and that, yeah they need it because you know not having the race of remembrance this year has cost them fifty thousand pounds uh, and they're not a big charity and they do do amazing stuff and it's, it's not a sum of money they can afford to just pass by so um yeah um if you can um anything you can do would be genuinely appreciated by chris me and the charity yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing this race actually happen because it's going to be very funny i'm sure um and all for a very good cause uh okay well let's wrap that one up there um 
And we, we do need to do another technically speaking podcast because the first one we did went down pretty well actually lots of people were kind enough to write in and say they enjoyed it um so we'll even though we have no idea what we're talking about well yeah but most people didn't seem to cotton on to that (laughs) we'll give them another (laughs) chance exactly we'll do that next week um so it just leaves me to say uh please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts basically that helps to surface the podcast near the top of the list the charts and that means we get new uh, listeners and that really helps to make it more sustainable. So please do that. Um, and we promise in return we'll be back next week and every week uh, with more nonsense about cars. Look forward to it. Cheers. Bye, everyone. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel.